Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, David Crow. Joining me in the studio today is Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. We'll also be joined down the line by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor, And our guest this week is Mark Bailey, Chief Executive of BOW, the new digital bank from Royal Bank of Scotland. This week, we'll be discussing the battle between Barclays and the activist investor Edward Brampson, Goldman's quest to find a fix for its fixed income business, and whether RBS's new online-only bank can really mount a challenge to digital natives like Monzo and Revolut. First up, we're joined by Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, who has been closely following the battle between Barclays and Ed Bramson, the activist investor trying to force his way onto the board. Stephen, it's just over three weeks until D-Day, when shareholders will vote on whether to make Mr Bramson a director, and the war of words is heating up. What's the latest? Well, both sides, Edward Bramson, the activist investor behind Sherborne, and Barclays themselves, led by CEO Jess Staley, have released very long public letters, basically laying out their arguments for and against the investment bank. Mr. Bramson wants it slashed back drastically, and perhaps counting in his favour was a very high-profile clash between the head of said investment bank, a guy called Tim Throsby, And Jess Staley, Tim Throsby resigned after telling his CEO that he didn't think it was possible for the investment bank to hit its targets, which is basically the same position that Edward Bramson is taking. However, in the course of our reporting, it doesn't appear that Bramson has enough backing at this time to get on the board. But he's just extended his financing options, about $1.4 that he's got on a deal with Bank of America and something called an equity collar, for another year. So it doesn't appear that he's getting discouraged by his lack of support or is going anywhere anytime soon. As you say, it doesn't sound like Bramson is going to bow out, even if he doesn't get on to the board at the next AGM. But what do you think, what's your sense of the scale of a protest vote needed to keep Mr. Bramson in the game? Okay, he might not get the 50 percent plus that he needs to get onto the board this time. But what would the sort of protest vote need to be to keep him relevant? I would say anything in the double digits, really. I mean, because that would be a significant sign of opposition to Barclays' current trajectory and strategy. You remember Jess Staley is taking personal control of the investment bank, which is clearly showing Bramson is having an impact even from outside. Now, Counting against him, one of the big proxy advisors for shareholders came out over the weekend and said they don't believe that Bramson needs to get on the board, that it would be unduly disruptive for him to get in there and be pushing for more job cuts and more restructuring whilst Barclays is, you know, only really just finished its last three year programme under Jess Staley. But I would say any double digit vote in Bramson's favour and perhaps depending on which investors back him, if any of the massive institutional ones choose to go into his camp, I would say all of that will keep him encouraged. And like we said, he's there for at least another year anyway. 
And as you say, Jess Staley taking much greater personal control, day-to-day control, if you like, of the investment bank. And we know there's been this falling out over the profitability of that unit. So what do we think? Any signs so far of what Mr. Staley intends to do that Mr. Throsby did not? Well, there have been reports that Mr. Throsby didn't like a proposed cut to his bankers' pay, and also that he thought that Mr. Staley was being too aggressive when the bank, uh, when the investment bank, could get to its double-digit targets. So Mr. Staley has said he wants to get in and become more granular. Now, usually that's a synonym for cutting back the areas that they've invested a lot in and not had the requisite returns so far. So we'll be looking. Equities has been Barclays' big push lately. They spent a lot of money, hired a lot of people to try and really get up to speed because traditionally they were a fixed income house. That means trading bonds. They're pretty good on UK and European debt advice, but equities has always been their traditional weakness. And we've seen a little bit of progress in the form of increased revenues. But Mr. Brampton, the activist investors come back against that, is that this has been unprofitable revenue generation. Barclays has been undercutting rivals just to bring in more money without necessarily looking on the flip side how much that costs. So we think we'll see Mr. Staley focusing much more on the returns of each business rather than just the absolute level of business, which of course is fairly easy to bring in if you're offering it cheaper than most of your competitors. So thank you, Stephen. There we have it, granular, a word that will strike fear into the hearts of investment bankers at Barclays. Next up, we're joined by Laura Noonan, our US banking editor down the line in New York. Now, Laura, you had a big number in the FT last week on Goldman's woes in fixed income trading, once a powerhouse for the Wall Street firm, but now a shadow of its former self. Give us a sense of how bad things have gotten for Goldman in fixed income trading and how the bank found itself here. I think it's fair to say that Goldman Sachs stayed committed to the fixed income currencies and commodities business much more than peers did over the last decade and in some ways has paid the price for that. So what we've seen with Goldman Sachs is a former CEO, Lloyd Blankfein, who talked repeatedly about the cyclical changes fixed income markets were undergoing when other banks talked about a secular change and began cutting back to meet that. That's left Goldman basically having a lot of resources still in fixed income even though the level of market activity has fallen. So market-wide, the overall wallet of fixed income has more than halved in the last decade. Goldman Sachs couldn't avoid gravity on that. So if you look at Goldman Sachs' own performance in the last decade, last year, fixed income only made $5.9 billion of revenue, or 16.1% of Goldman Sachs' total revenue, which is a really remarkable thing for a firm where fixed income was at the very heart. That's the lowest level of contribution from fixed income in the last 20 years. I think fixed income definitely has never been a smaller part of Goldman Sachs than it is today. And in terms of how they got there, there's a couple of reasons why Goldman Sachs' fall has been sharper than peers since the crisis. Goldman Sachs did better in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. As we lay out in the piece, they were a lot more bullish. There was a perception in Goldman Sachs in good shape, therefore it should take share from rivals. However, that then led them into 2010 on a really high level. And it took them a while to accept that there had been early gains, but that those gains maybe were not the most sustainable over the longer term. There was also, I think, because the firm was run by someone who'd come from the fixed income trading background, Lloyd Blankfein, there was a level of executive commitment to fixed income trading that maybe you wouldn't have seen so much in the other large banks. And certainly talking to people inside the company and talking to observers who know it well, there was a feeling that it would have been very difficult for Lloyd Blankfein to make material cuts to fixed income and for him to be as clear-eyed and detached about it as maybe, say, someone like the CEO of UBS was 
when they made their big fix income cuts that was back in 2012. Now, Goldman had first quarter numbers out this week. How did the bank fare in the first three months of the year? And was there any update to this fixed income review? In the first quarter, actually, Goldman didn't do too badly, especially in fixed income trading. They were only down 11% compared to, say, a JP Morgan, who was down 18% year on year. So I guess what you have to bear in mind there is Goldman Sachs was coming off a lower base. But the first quarter, while not a good quarter, and while things were still falling, certainly Goldman seems to have outperformed some of its peers. Now, David Solomon, the bank's relatively new chief executive, has a plan to turn the division around, a fix for fixed income, if you like. Tell us what he's planning to do and whether there are any signs that his proposals will work. In terms of the fixed income review, it did feature in the call. The CFO, Stephen Sher did say that fixed income currencies and commodities is going to be a particular focus of a broad-based review of Goldman Sachs' businesses and that they would have a plan to enable FIC to improve its returns. And the call with analysts, he was drawn a bit more on that. He talked about how this wasn't just a cutting expenses plan because that's something that could be achieved pretty quickly. It was more about trying to broaden the client base and trying to tweak the business so that there would be some more revenue opportunities there. He did talk a bit about the commodities in some more detail and that, that there would be areas of commodities where there would be cutbacks. He didn't identify which those were, but said that money actions had already been taken. So that's really what he's doing to turn the commodities business around. I mean, he gave a little bit more detail on how they were going to meet the clients more where they want to execute. And that basically means investment in technology now, but it means lower headcount going forward and lower staff costs going forward. So that's one of the areas that they're really focusing on. And I think that they can also, as well as using some of this new technology to attract new clients, they think that if they use technology to settle trades faster, that can help them on the capital front as well. As to whether it will work or not, it's a bit of a tough call because these things take a very long time. So Goldman stressed in this call again and again that its overall plan was to come up with a three-year plan and that they were going to run the bank with a medium-term horizon rather than just looking to the next quarter or two. So a lot of the things that Goldman Sachs is doing in its fixed income business will take time to pay off. The other thing that they're hoping is going to help is the new cash management division. That's being built this year. It will only manage Goldman Sachs' corporate cash in 2019 and then it will take third-party accounts from 2020. Certainly there's a lot of evidence in the industry that having cash management can help you to get fixed income currencies and commodities revenue on the foreign exchange side. But that also takes a long time to flow through. These are contracts that typically run for years. It's not the same as getting someone to do a new current account because you have to actually have a five-year contract and wait for those things to roll off. So I think these are long-term plans rather than things we saw other banks do with their fixed income divisions, which was mainly around cutting. A lot of the effort is focused around maintaining as big a footprint as they can while making that a more efficient footprint and then actually growing it. And the jury is very much out as to whether it's going to deliver the results Goldman expects. And we may never actually know because the thing about the fixed income business is it's so dependent on market conditions. So this may be completely the wrong plan, but they might get a fair win from markets and it might all turn out great anyway. So it's one of those things where unfortunately it's very hard to say this is the right way to go and this is the wrong way to go. So finally, to our guest, Mark Bailey, Chief Executive of Bow, the new digital bank from Royal Bank of Scotland. Mark, thanks very much for joining us. Now, by my count, your bank already has three brands, RBS, NatWest and now Metal, a digital bank for small and medium-sized companies. Why does it need a fourth? I think the answer is we're creating something quite different. When we look at the world, there are four big macro trends out there. 
customer behavior is changing very quickly. New models are emerging. Technology has sort of inverted from originally being the big barrier to entry to a massive facilitator. And the barriers to entry, mainly through regulation, are coming down quite quickly. When we look at that and then we look at the behavior of our customers and what we see is large chunks of the UK population really struggling to make ends meet. And importantly, when we look at that population, there seems to be little or no correlation between how much you earn and how much you spend. The combination of those sort of four macro trends and that sort of deep customer need, which is your ability to save looks to be behavioral, means the world could change quite quickly. The reality of our core systems is we're going to evolve into that world over a period of time. If customer behavior changes faster, we need to be in a position to react to it. It's interesting you bring up your sort of existing technology systems because many of your competitors are focusing all of their efforts on improving those existing systems rather than, if you like, being distracted by setting up an entirely new bank. Why did you go down this path and do you think your competitors are going to follow eventually? I think there are two views on this out there in the industry and we had a long debate amongst the management team. And the broad question is, how fast do you think customer behavior will change? Because if that customer behavior change happens over a 10 to 15 year period, the incumbent banks clearly have enough time and they're all working quite hard to get there to address the new customer need. If it happens in a three to five year period, it's unlikely that the core systems will be able to evolve fast enough. And we took the view that because we couldn't know that timing, we should pursue both strategies and keep a constant watching eye. And if it looks like customer behavior is going to be in the 10 to 15 year period, we will have learned a huge amount that will be really valuable to the core bank. And if it happens much faster, we will be in the market and able to react. So do I think they'll follow? I don't know. Some people have made some very firm decisions that they're not going to run two technology stacks, which I suppose time will tell. Okay, so I'm a customer and I'm thinking about changing bank account, fed up with the person I'm banking with at the moment. And I'm looking at RBS and there are three brands as a consumer I can choose from, RBS, NatWest and now Bo. How is Bo going to differentiate itself from the first two? I think the first question is, why do customers feel like they don't have control of money? And we went through a lot of qualitative testing with customer groups. And the overriding feeling we got back from people was when money was cash, they felt much better able to control their lives. And clearly, the days when all money was cash have gone and the usage of cash is falling quite quickly in the economy. What we're trying to address is how you give people back control of money. And that sounds like a sort of blithe, really easy to say statement. And the analogy we use internally, this is much more like couch to 5K. Getting someone sitting on the couch and telling them just to go out and run a 5K isn't particularly helpful. What we're trying to do is give you the tools to get back in control of your life around all your financial life. So the first thing you need to do is be able to separate your discretionary spending away from your bills and mortgages or rent and actually understand how much you have and what you should be trying to save each month. And we can give you some help with that. We've got some big data sets that allow us to give you some guidance. We then want you to understand how much you'd like to save and whether 
that level of saving is achievable. And for that, we can show you what the best performers do. And then once you've decided how much you'd like to save is to put in the tools that allow you to understand how you're progressing against that, maybe give you some tips and show you. So if your best friend from university miraculously saves 30% of their discretionary money each month and you save nothing, what exactly do they do? Because there are some clear behaviours that differentiate the people who spend all their money and the people who save quite big proportions of it. And that's sort of the start of the journey. We're not asking you to change your main bank account. We're saying run this account as a companion to your existing bank and it doesn't have to be NatWest. It could be Lloyd's or HSBC or Santander. And just start getting back in control of that discretionary spend each month. And as you start saving... We think that will allow you then to sort of have more ambition and then move on to some other areas that will really allow you to take back financial control. And I think the stat which struck us most when we started this was from the Money Advice Service who estimate 16.8 million people or 40% of the working age adults of the UK have less than £100 of savings. Are there any fees for Bo? It's the standard model within the UK, which is free and credit. Free and credit. Okay. And as you might imagine, we have been out there asking Monzo and the other digital de novo banks what they think of Bo. They say it's very flattering. They think you're learning some of their new tricks. But they say a storied bank like RBS just can't operate with a startup culture like theirs. How would you respond to that, Mark? Well, it's a a comment that's made quite often. And undoubtedly, the new banks have created some quite interesting cultures and they've definitely delivered quickly and we've unapologetically copied a lot of the good things that have happened so running the business entirely separate from the core on a separate technology stack with dedicated people whose only job is to deliver bow and people who came with the purpose in mind so who look out there at the world and say actually customers need more help that's the problem we're going to solve has worked and has created a huge amount of pace and a huge amount of desire within the business to solve that problem. I think reflective, one of the things that was said when we started this by some of the de novo banks was banks can never react quickly. So they may see what we're doing, but they'll never be able to copy it in any time. And it's taken us about a year to build a working bank. So I think that's some evidence that we can copy the culture. The other thing I'd say is The culture within banks isn't all bad. So risk culture matters and understanding that you're dealing with the precious assets of somebody else and you've got to be able to monitor the fraud. You've got to be able to do sanction screening. You've got to be able to run a bank properly. I think there's a slight offset that we can probably go quicker in the longer term because we understand the risks we're really taking. Okay, well, Mark, it took you a year to create Bo. Hopefully you'll join us again, check back in and tell us how it's going a little bit sooner than that. Thanks a lot. Take Uh, care. It'll be less than a year. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Stephen, Laura and our guest, Mark Bailey. And to thank you too for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com forward slash offer. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com forward slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.